3: Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault for an older episode of the show. It is, let's see, what's up today? Oh, it's the Halo Part 2. This one originally published on March 2nd, 2021. We we reran the first part of the Halo series last Saturday, so if you missed that, you can go check that out uh, as well. Uh, I remember this, this series was a lot of fun, so we hope you enjoy it.
2: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And
0: I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our talk about halos and the nimbus and the the aureole, the glory that glows behind the figure, whether that's a Christian saint or Huwawa the Terrible, or uh, did we end up last
1: week actually talking about luchadors at all? I... I I think we did very briefly, partially because we were in in the process of putting together a Weird House Cinema episode on on an El Santo film. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, the question came up, are there any halos... Uh, used with luchador designs, uh, with the idea being that, yeah, there are a number of different Catholicism-themed luchadors. So uh, after we recorded, I did look into it a little bit. I looked at some of the usual suspects and looked on Lucha Wiki and looked at some photos. I didn't notice any halo motifs uh, in the mask for the most part, like nothing Nothing like um, like actually physically emerging and uh, positioned above the head. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you see a lot of crosses, etc. The the best example I did find though was a luchador named uh, Angel Azul. Um, one of at least four different luchadors who's used that name, and this particular mask depicts an entire angel. Uh, like a like a Christmas topper angel on the front of the mask, and that angel has a halo. So it's positioned so that the, the angel's head and halo appear more or less in the center of the forehead. So I assume this is a Technico, not a Ruto. I guess so. Um, I don't know anything about this guy, but it looks like a Technico mask. You know, if you have an angel okay. like that, uh, you know, it's, it's got to be. But then again, he could easily turn Rudo and become a fallen angel, especially if he loses that mask. Oh yeah, I mean a, a bad angel can be really bad. You get angels of death.
0: You've got uh, you've got. Uh, uh, I remember a, a particularly haunting Miklós Radnóti poem called "The Terrifying Angel," where he mm-hmm. an angel appears to him and advises him to
1: remove his own skin. Yeah, <laughs> there's a there are a number of different in lucha. There have been a few different uh, angels of death, Angel de la Muerte. Um, there's one I remember seeing on TV that did not really have any. Any kind of um, angelic themes in his outfit, but I did run across uh, on Lucha Wiki an old uh, photo from a magazine that had showed a guy with a halo motif again on the forehead, almost like a third eye. But that's the only thing I could really find in terms of uh, dudes like this with uh, with halos. Now, um, uh, another thing that comes to mind, though, you know, we we're talking a little bit about halos and, and angels and um, certainly in art, but I started thinking more and more about films. And I can't think of a single example of of, of a, an angelic being presented in, say, a horror film or some sort of supernatural film in which they have a halo. Like, I was thinking, like, what are some of the, the, the angel visitation scenes that come to mind? And I thought of, well, the, I thought of Bill Paxton's film, Frailty, which has a great angel visitation scene, like a, um, you know, hallucination that emerges in his mind, but there's no halo.
0: Now, I might be remembering that wrong. I thought that The angel in that, uh, it doesn't have like a ring halo around the head or anything specifically concentrated on the head, but I, I did recall a kind of like full body glow. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, it
1: definitely, definitely has a glow to it. And there is, there's a lot of like, uh, heavenly architecture going on above it. Mm -hmm. But in terms of something more instantly recognizable as a halo, not so much. Um, likewise, I was thinking back to the prophecy films with Christopher Walken, uh, You know, a lot of a lot of a lot of a lot of angels in that a lot of angel wings. And you can think of various things that were clearly uh, influenced by that. You know, we have angels and fallen angels popping up and filmmakers will go nuts, giving them big, big feathery wings. Uh, Mm. But I don't think they ever really include the halo. And it's kind of interesting because I guess it comes down to the fact that it's easy to think of it as such a cliche thing. But at the same time, it is so weird, and, and, it, and there's so many ways to depict it. You'd think you would you would see more of it. I don't know. I, I'd love to hear it from folks out there who have encountered really cool halos in genre pictures, uh, because I'd love to uh, I'd love to see it. Now, in the last episode, did you bring up the idea of a Cenobite from like the Clive Barker verse with the with a halo? I can't remember if we if we did, but I started looking into it after the podcast. And um, I think there's in a comic Hellraiser comic book there's a there's a Cenobite named Halo, but he doesn't really have a halo. Now uh, <laughs> th- there was a um, a Clive Barker action figure for the Todd McFarlane uh, toys uh, for the Tortured Souls line, and this guy uh, uh, this particular guy um, Agonistes has kind of a sur- he has like a surgical halo around his head like a halo. And then he also has what I think is like a human face, maybe his own human face positioned behind him, uh, that also seems to mimic uh, halo iconography. So it's a very Cenobite-esque character. So this seems to come close. Certainly Clive Barker loves uh, toying around with religious imagery. So uh, it makes sense that we would find an example of this in something he designed. Yeah. Fun fact, those uh, those figures that came out, um, turns out they each had a portion of a novella in them that uh, I think for a long time you could only get if you bought all the figures, but it's subsequently been put out uh, uh, sometime in the last five years or so, um, titled Tortured Souls, The Legend of uh, Primordium. And I read it over the weekend, uh, <laughs> enjoying some time out in the hammock, and uh-huh. uh, it was pretty fun. You know, it's uh, it's like there's not a... Relatable human character in the whole thing. It's just like a bunch of like sort of monsters and uh, and so forth. It's in a like kind of a dark fantasy setting, um, kind of hellraisery at times for sure, but but not entirely. Like it felt it, it was really good. It's one of the I haven't read a lot of Clive Barker recently, but this one is new to me and uh, I enjoyed it. So a novella
0: that comes serially within the action figures that you would buy at Spencer's Gifts in the nineties. Yeah, and it was, yeah. and to my shock, it was like it was it was actually really enjoyable. Uh, so <laughs> there you go. I wonder if the Insane Clown Posse action figures had a
1: novella that came with them. I doubt it. I think this was the. Only, uh, I think there was actually another Clive Barker line where it was some sort of like carnival kind of a theme where he did another mm-hmm. one uh, like this where he had different. Um, different chapters in a novella that all came together if you bought all the figures. Mm-hmm. But um but and that one and that one is also available to read now, but I haven't read it. Uh it's interesting though with the action figures though, because the whole thing, right, is that you don't take them out of the box if you're collecting them. Oh so right. And yeah. if that was the case you wouldn't get to read the uh the cool little novella chapters that are hidden within there. Well you wouldn't get to play with them either. I mean what are you supposed to do with these things? I don't know. They they, they don't look tremendously fun to play with <laughs> they, <laughs> They kind of—they're very grisly. Um, yeah, have a little tea party with your Barbie and your Cinnabites. Yeah, but the, but the, like I say, the, the novella was fun.
0: So, in the last episode, we ended up talking about a lot of the different ways that the halo or the nimbus has been represented or characterized in history, Uh, You know, sometimes as a glowing disc behind the head or even a solid-looking kind of gold disc, sometimes even as a square or as a ring around the head, other times as a kind of just general emanation of light, like a glow coming from behind the head, almost as if there's bioluminescent hair or a a light bulb behind the head or behind the whole body, a full-body glow glow is sometimes characterized as a a halo or aureole or nimbus and when it comes to the the kind that's just like a, a glow or an emanation of divine light from around the body i started to wonder about uh the idea of the aura now i guess there's a general concept of an aura that you could just think of as like this is any emanation of color or light from a body like in the um In the ancient Mesopotamian mythology, where we talked about Humbaba or Huawa having the seven terrors or the radiance, the terrifying radiance that emanated from his body, uh, those things could be viewed as an aura. But there's also a more specific definition of an aura, which is a sort of standard claim in the modern world of psychics and New Age spirituality and parapsychology. People often claim to be able to see some kind of aura around human bodies and sometimes around other objects. So I wonder, could this modern belief in auras in any way be related to the origins of the religious belief in the halo, the glory,
1: the melom, the sun disc crown, etc.? This sounds perfectly reasonable, right? I mean, this is, a lot of it is getting, it would seem on the surface at least, to get to the same ideas. The idea that there's something either emanating out of you or through you, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, totally. Uh, and and the secondary question, if people do really sometimes see a glow of color or a cloud of blazing light around someone, what would cause that? Uh, so I'm going to transition to this subject for a bit and look at it a few different ways. The first thing I wanted to know was, wait a second, is it actually possible in just a straightforward scientific physical sense that humans do actually sometimes glow? Yeah, I don't know. I've come across weirder facts on this show before. So I started looking into this. Uh, The first thing I thought of was, I wonder if there's ever been a case where somebody uh, was was made to glow by exposure to, I don't know, something in the environment. And the thing that popped to my mind was in The Simpsons, Ah. when characters who work at the nuclear power plant acquire what Mr. Burns would call a healthy green glow. Uh, So I was wondering, does exposure to radiation actually have the potential to make people glow? Unfortunately, it seems the answer is no. Uh, ionizing radiation is generally invisible itself, and being exposed to it can, of course, wreck your body, but it won't make you glow. Uh, th- this myth actually probably comes from a combination of facts, uh, the first of which would be about radioluminescence. So there are some materials that do glow in the presence of ionizing radiation. Uh, for example, the paint that was once commonly used for radium dials on clock faces and, and is sometimes still used for like um, instruments that are made to be viewed in the dark, for example, in, in spacecraft. Uh, you know, so you want a, a dial or an instrument that'll glow in the dark without having to have any kind of power supply to it or a you know, uh, or an LED inside it or anything like that. Uh, this radioluminescent paint Actually, had to have a combination of two major elements in order to make it glow. Uh, in in the old school kind that was used by like uh, the the company Undark, or you know that was uh, tragically the the cause of the the death and sickening of the Radium Girls. This was a paint that was made with radium, which is the radioactive element that supplied the ionizing radiation. But then it also had to have an element that is known as a phosphor, which is a chemical that glows when it's stimulated by alpha and beta particles and gamma rays from... The uh, from the radioactive element. And in the case of the radioluminescent paint that was used by Undark and companies like that in the first half of the 20th century, the phosphor was usually zinc sulfide that was then laced with a metal like copper to give it a green color. And so because of the specific nature of this material, this phosphor, when the atoms in it are struck by ionizing radiation, they get excited, their electrons jump up to a higher energy level, and then they fall back down to their ground state. And when they fall back down to their ground state, they emit a photon of light as they do that, they release the energy back out and this is the glow we see and of course the the color of the glow can be determined by what kind of metal it's laced with again uh copper tends to give a green color so i think this is the source of the belief that radiation will cause something to have a green glow won't cause anything to have a green glow it will specifically give a green glow to paint with a phosphor in it and something to make that glow the color green like copper okay so long story short exposure to ionizing radiation can absolutely kill you, but it will not make you glow, I guess, unless you coat yourself in a phosphor.
1: Okay. So the the this, that one episode of The Simpsons where uh, Mr. Burns has been found to be wandering through the right. woods after I his medical treatments. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, okay. and, unless, uh, yeah, maybe he somehow paints his body in zinc sulfide or something, zinc sulfide and copper, and then just get some plutonium in there, maybe. Okay. Uh, I don't know how long he would survive that though.
1: Well, as we as I think was as explained on the show, uh Mr. Burns is imperil from so many different causes of death that they are they're mm-hmm. stuck in the door, right? Right. Like the- Three Stooges
0: syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> so even the ionizing radiation is going woo. <laughs> So anyway, uh, it, you know, you're not going to have a situation where, I don't know, an ancient, uh, a person in the ancient world came across a stash of uranium ore and then somehow ended up glowing green. So everybody would see him and think, wow, you know, that guy's a god or something mm, okay. uh, that, that just wouldn't happen. But I came across another fact that is pretty weird, which is that in a qualified sense, the human body actually does just naturally glow Meaning it doesn't only reflect light from external sources, but the body actually does emit electromagnetic radiation in the visible spectrum. Visible light comes out of your body. Huh. But before you get too excited, the amount of light that our bodies put out on average is really, really tiny. It's roughly a thousand times too dim to see with the naked eye. You need special scientific instruments in a very dark room to pick it up. Uh, And but you should know that this is different from like the heat that we emit as infrared radiation. Uh, If this light were bright enough, it would be light that would actually have a color that you could see with your eyes. It is that kind of light. Hmm. Um, And of course, it's not just us. Most or maybe all other animals would also emit a similar kind of light. Nevertheless, this glow is kind of interesting uh, I was wondering, so what what makes this glow happen? It appears to be chemical reactions involving free radicals within the body. There was a 2009 study that tried to measure this photon emission uh, from the hu- human body using special equipment. So this was by Masaki Kobayashi, Daisuke Kikuchi, and Hitoshi Okamura, published in PLOS-1 in 2009. Uh, called Imaging of ultra weak Spontaneous Photon Emission from Human Body Displaying Diurnal Rhythm. And so what the researchers did here was they used a cryogenic CCD camera to image five healthy male subjects in their 20s at different times throughout the day. So the, the subjects would come in, they'd sit in a chair, I think they were partially naked or at least bare-chested, in, in the chair in a dark room, for at least 20 minutes. I think there was a period of adjustment to the darkness. And then after that, they'd be photographed for 20 minutes with the special camera. And they do this every day for uh, every three hours from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. And the researchers actually found that the amount of light emitted from the body varied significantly over the day. So people glowed the most at about 4 p.m. and the least at 10 a.m. And they hypothesized that this probably has something to do with how energy metabolism changes throughout the day according to our circadian rhythms but also interesting or at least i thought this was interesting rob i've attached a picture for you to look at down here the body did not glow equally everywhere in fact faces tended to glow more than the rest of the body it seems like hmm. and and there were other kinds of differences like upper shoulders seemed to glow a little bit more than down lower around like the chest or the stomach And different parts of the face glowed more than other parts. So it looks like the area around the mouth in particular was usually glowing more than, say, like the forehead or or around the eyes or the sides of the face. This thing about the mouth especially makes me imagine an alternate history of halo imagery where the glow is not just surrounding the crown of the head, but emanating
1: from the mouth and jaw, a kind of glory beard. Oh, okay. Also kind of a pan effect, right? Uh, Ooh, yes. Like when we first encountered Pan, and he has light coming out of his eyes and then mm-hmm. out of his mouth.
0: One of my favorite line deliveries there is the incredulous way that Kurt Russell says that he had light coming out of his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Big trouble in Little China for anyone who's yeah. not familiar. Uh, but anyway, so I, I was reading an NBC News report about this study from 2009 by uh, Charles Q. Choi, and and he wrote that um, one reason that the face might glow more than the rest of the body is that in is that usually faces are more tanned than the rest of the body since they get more exposure to sunlight, mm-hmm. and that uh, he said that the pigment behind that that tanning in the skin melanin has fluorescent compounds that might uh, might help the skin produce even more light than other skin on the body does.
1: Hmm. Okay.
0: But since this glow is not detectable with the naked eye, none of this is going to have anything to do with the origins of, of halo or Nimbus or aureole imagery, though it, it is a nice thing to know nonetheless.
1: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Start saving on wireless today at visible.com monthly rate on the visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit visible.com.
0: But to come back to the place we started, people do of course, sometimes make various paranormal claims that they can see a glow of colored light emanating from human beings. Again, this is sometimes called like an aura or an energy field. Um, So uh, I have to be kind of circumspect here. The belief in auras is I have discovered an exceedingly complicated subject with a weird and interesting history. Maybe one we'll have to come back to and explore more in the future, uh, since this is one of those subjects. I'm sure you've had this experience on the show before, Rob, where, like, I, I was trying to read into it so I could give a brief overview, but it was kind of like you go down into a basement and you open an old chest to just like get the things out and see what's inside it. But then something in there starts moving mm-hmm. and uh, and I'm like, ah, OK, uh, so I, I cannot I, I cannot get my brain fully around this subject. I think I can only mention some aspects of it. From what I can tell, the New Age belief in seeing auras seems to stem from a kind of reinterpretation of the medieval tantric belief in chakras. Uh, So chakras would have been uh, a belief original to esoteric Hindu. It's also... It's kind of hard to succinctly describe even what these are, but I think you can think of them as sort of a collection of nodes or channels that are positioned at different points inside the body and correspond to elements of an imagined subtle body, a second non-material energy-based body. And the images of these channels or nodes throughout the body would be used in some kinds of tantric meditation. So you might focus mental imagery on one of these nodes at various points positioned often along the sort of vertical axis through the middle of the body, but also at a few other points. So Rob, I think you probably know more about this world. Is, is, is that basically your understanding?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good basic summary of it. And, and I, I've, I've engaged in yoga and meditation that uses chakras as well. Um, and, and I find that I, I, I guess one way that I like to think of it is it is not it is not the way the, a, the body actually works, but it is a way that the body can be interpreted uh, to aid in meditation or yoga, like mm-hmm. thinking about, um, you know, like this energy point moving from chakra to chakra, focusing on, say, um, like breathing through your third eye. You know, obviously, mm-hmm. you're not really breathing through a hole in your, your skull. Mm-hmm. Um, but somehow, like, focusing on that can be very helpful. It gives you, like, a, a different physical focus to get out of your thoughts and, uh, and even, you know, sort of focus on the, on the, the physicality of that part of your body. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I find it very helpful. Though, though again, I, I do not engage with it in a way where I think of this as, like, the actual way that the energy in my body is working. Right. It might not correspond to like physical anatomical realities, but can serve as a
0: focal point for mental imagery and and a way of directing the thoughts. Yeah. But so that's that's chakras. I think like within the uh, the the esoteric Hindu tradition. Then in the late 19th and early 20th century, it seems this idea somehow got sort of picked up and reinterpreted by various people associated with new religious movements like Theosophy, mm-hmm. and a lot of the 20th century New Age belief in auras as an emanation from the body seems to trace back to. A British spiritualist and theosophist writer named Charles Webster Ledbetter, who lived from 1854 to 1934. Uh, I was just – again, I, I can only give the briefest glance into this world because it seems very – it's it's like looking at Gnosticism or something. It's just like mm-hmm. you, you cannot really understand it from the outside. but. I was trying to peek in and and get some kind of of, uh, characterization here, so I found a couple of quotes from a writing by Ledbetter called – this was a book called Man Visible and Invisible. I think this was actually a reproduction of an earlier uh, pamphlet or essay he had done about the belief in auras, and he writes the following. All members of our society will be familiar with the idea that every human being is surrounded by a sort of luminous cloud, which we have agreed to call the aura, and we have heard from those who have succeeded in developing the special sense by which it is cognized that it has various beautiful colors, and that from a study of it much may be learnt as to the disposition, the thoughts, and even the past life of its possessor. And then later he comes to a physical description of what this aura is, what it looks like. He writes... "...we find that it is exceedingly complex in structure. At the first glance it is seen as a luminous cloud extending to a distance of about 18 inches or 2 feet from the body in all directions, and therefore approximately oval in shape, whence it is sometimes spoken of in occult writings as the auric egg. In most cases it has no well-defined outline, but its edges fade into invisibility very gradually." Uh, And I think this is interesting because this really does sound like he's describing the the halo glow that we see in a lot of religious artwork or here Mm -hmm. described in in a lot of religious poetry. A sort of oval-shaped framing or emanation of light from the body that sort of gradually dissipates as it gets farther away.
1: Yeah. It also kind of feels like my holy personal space that thou shalt not (laughs) intrude upon. (laughs) Right. Don't put anything in my
0: auric egg. And then he goes on to explain a bunch more stuff like that these are actually composed of a number of layers of underlying auras, uh, one that he calls the health aura, which uh, what there's one that has something to do with the Hindu concept of prana or life force. There's one that has something to do with desire. And the ability to see these uh, alleged auras in this context is usually ascribed to people either with special powers of sight, some kind of psychic perception, or um, even more often, it seems, with special training, who have uh, worked to harness their ability to see the auras of others. Now, as with many other psychic and paranormal phenomena – People who claim to be able to see auras as an objective physical phenomenon have, have repeatedly been put to the test in parapsychology research, which, uh, from what I read, usually finds no evidence for any consistency in the perception of auras. It seems to me like it is more likely a, an internal subjective interpreted experience, not a perception of an objectively verifiable external reality. And these tests can include lots of different things, like some of them you might look at the auras of different people who are obscured by a screen and then later try to identify the same people again when the screen is removed. Okay, so you saw their auras, which person was standing where behind the screen, and Mm -hmm. usually people who claim to have aura perception abilities cannot perform better than chance at this. Nevertheless, there does seem to be a real perception of the ability to uh, to view a glow emanating from people. And so that does make you wonder, like, OK, well, even if this is not an externally verifiable physical reality, people are for some reason believing that they see something. They, they look at somebody and they think they see a luminous cloud surrounding them. So uh, c- could that have anything to do with the with the halo or nimbus tradition? A uh, one interesting coincidence. Uh, th- this might just be a total coincidence, actually, and not have anything to, not have any causal link. But one interesting thing I come across while I was poking around at uh, aura perception on the internet is that there is often a belief that there are seven layers of auras. There are actually different systems where people say there are different numbers of layers, but a common. Mm-hmm. One is seven layers, which takes me back to the ancient Mesopotamian ogre, Huwawa or Humbaba, who is said to have seven terrors or seven auras that he could take off one at a
1: time. Oh no, that, that is that's a very good very good point. Yeah. I wonder if there's an actual connection there or uh, hmm because I mean we also we also have to think again back to the the chakra tradition in, in which they're, you know you're generally dealing with the seven chakra system, so that might be the way it's connected as well. Right.
0: But I think it's also worth noting that there are some major differences, as far as I can see, between how these different religious concepts like the halo versus the aura are described. Uh, For example, in in, uh, New Age mysticism, the aura is usually said to emanate from every living being, again, I think there's probably some variation there, but it's a common claim that, like, even insects and plants and even sometimes inanimate objects would have their own aura, whereas the halo, both in Christian iconography and in its predecessors from ancient religion, uh, this would be reserved for special beings. It's the divine spotlight, like you said last time, or it's the emanation of terrifying god power. Hmm.
1: I mean, it does make me think about just the the idea of beholding somebody and mm-hmm. that person being, say, particularly beautiful or charismatic, you know, and, uh, you know, interpreting that as kind of a, a holy glow. And in a way, it does get back to the actual way that we we would behold someone, you mm-hmm. know, in, in terms of how light, uh, you know, reflecting off of off of people or things, uh, you know, light entering our eyes, et cetera.
0: Well, I think I'm going to get to this in a minute, but I think there could well be something to the idea that beliefs about things like halos or auras could very well be quite literally in the eye of the beholder. Ah, okay. So I came across a study that asks an interesting question. Again, I remember I was trying to think, okay, so if people do sometimes look at other people or at figures or even statues of gods or something and believe they see an an emanation of light around them, believe they see a nimbus or a a holy glow, could people's perceptions of these auras or halos sometimes be explained by cases of synesthesia? Mm. Uh, This was explored in a paper I was looking at that was published in Consciousness and Cognition in the year 2012 by Milan et al. called Auras in Mysticism and Synesthesia, a Comparison. Uh, So the authors here write that synesthesia, quote, is a condition in which one type of stimulation evokes the sensation of another. As when hearing a sound leads to the perception of mental colors or photisms, photisms, that's a standard term in the synesthesia literature. It's a type of visual stimulation that associates something that is not originally visual in nature or is a different kind of stimulus so one common example in synesthesia is grapheme color synesthesia where certain letters of the alphabet or numerals are consistently associated with a color sensation so imagine if like if you don't experience synesthesia personally try to imagine if for some reason in your mind the letter g was purple and the letter h was yellow okay And there are a bunch of different kinds of this. There are people for whom I remember reading that one classic attribution of synesthesia uh, was that there was an account of a man, I think maybe reported by John Locke, who said that every time he heard the sound of a trumpet or a French horn or something, he saw the color red. Mm -hmm. But there are also some uh, less common types of synesthesia that have specifically to do with the idea or image of individual people. Uh, So the authors here write, quote, One of the relatively infrequent varieties is the one where photisms are triggered by emotion-affect-laden stimuli such as emotional words, photographs, human figures, and the faces of familiar people. For instance, for R, a synesthete who participated in this study, the sight of a familiar person automatically triggers a mental image of a human silhouette filled with color. Different people are typically associated with different color hues, depending on R's affective relationship with the person in question, e.g. he claims that he has always associated his mother with the color blue. Hmm. And I looked this up and I found people online in forums, sure enough, talking about this exact experience today. Uh, Like I recall just one example I came across, uh, one person saying that. With their person-color synesthesia, both of their parents were blue, but different shades of blue. But so anyway, the the authors here wanted to tie this to the the mystical concept of aura reading or aura perception and ask, is it possible that the neurological phenomenon of person-color synesthesia could be responsible for some of the claims of aura vision in these New Age religious experiences? And they tried to figure this out by comparing the first-person reports of four test subjects with person-color synesthesia against the performance of aura readers and the reports of auras from the literature. Now, long story short, the authors here actually conclude that these phenomena are described in usually very different ways with different characteristics and that experiences of person-color synesthesia are probably not a major cause of belief in auras. And they are, they, they put up a table in their conclusion comparing a lot of the, the differences between these things. Just to mention what I thought were a couple of the most relevant takeaways, uh, and this one seemed maybe the most significant to me. They say that people with person-color synesthesia usually report seeing the photism, quote, In the mind's eye. So there would be like a strong mental association between a person and a color, but most synesthetes do not believe that they are literally seeing the color radiating from the person's body directly Mm. in and mingled with their actual vision. It's a mental association. Okay. Whereas the aura that the clairvoyant reports is usually said to be a direct visual stimulus, like it's a literal cloud or halo around the body that can be directly observed as you observe things with your eyes. Uh, now, again, I, th- there's a lot of variation in this tradition, so I'm sure there are some, some counter examples to that, but that seems to be the dominant way that it's reported. Uh, A couple of other things they report, synesthesia is usually a lifelong condition, which is probably congenital, whereas the uh, reported clairvoyant ability to perceive auras is said to be a learned skill more often. Uh, uh, They also say that person color synesthesia is triggered automatically and requires no effort. It's just a natural association as naturally triggered as if I said, uh, like, uh, hey, you know, what's the color of a banana? Like, you can't help but think it. It just comes automatically to your brain upon hearing the words. They say counter to that aura reading usually is said to be something that requires concentration and special conditions.
1: Hmm. Now, it does make me wonder if now, obviously, you would not have to be a a, a synesthetic uh, person to engage in aura reading. Um, You know, you could easily take on the trappings and the, you know, the the, the dramatic aspects of this uh, Mm -hmm. kind of performance. But if you were a person with synesthesia, uh, you would be uniquely uh, outfitted to do this kind of work, you know? Uh, Oh, yeah, Sure. You know, you, you know, to, to not just say, oh, yeah, you're, you're blue, you're light blue, et cetera. You know, you, you know, to pause and to concentrate and to put on the, the, the show that people need to see. Mm-hmm. But then you would have an actual color to refer to, right? Oh, because you'd have an automatic
0: association in your mind that sort of comes naturally there. Like you wouldn't have to be straining for something.
1: Right. But I guess then you're probably getting into a question. OK, in the field of aura reading, are there certain... Color, you know, I'm sure there are certain colors associated with different things. There's probably a system. There's a color yeah, code, yeah. and that color code might not match up with the way that the synesthetic uh, brain is is uh, coding the world. Right, exactly. That's another major difference. Is that uh, that, and they
0: talk about this in the paper. The for people with person color synesthesia, they generally understand their individual pairings of certain colors with certain people to be, uh, to be idiopathic, like yeah. to come from their own personal associations. Whereas, uh, usually people who believe that they can read auras say that they're like, ref- they're referring to some kind of like objectively external thing that other aura readers would supposedly see the same thing and it would have a specific meaning.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You 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 want to feel like you're tapping into some sort of cosmic, overarching order when you have your aura read, as opposed to just like what this this guy <laughs> uh, th- th- thinks in his head when he remembers you. Sure. Uh
0: But one thing I did want to say, so a couple of things. First of all, I, I did think it was worth noting before relying too heavily on the study I just mentioned, I did find a pretty scathing criticism published in the same journal in Consciousness and Cognition the same year uh, by uh, Cardania et al., that basically, like, while lauding the the general thrust of this study, it also criticized the authors for allegedly being sloppy with a couple of things about like how they represented or presented parapsychology in the aura literature. Uh, I don't know that this would necessarily change the main findings, but but uh, th- there was some criticism there. So if you're looking into this, look up the, the critical review as well. Um, but also, I wanted to hand over my Nothing to See Here Award to the authors on this one, because it, mm-hmm. it's always nice to see a full up of a hypothesis that does not pan out. Yeah. But uh, the authors in their conclusion do refer to something else that I thought was interesting. Uh, They say, okay, it it doesn't look like there's all that strong of a link between the phenomenology of synesthesia and the phenomenology reported by people who do aura readings. Uh, It looks like they're reporting different kinds of experiences, so there's probably not a strong causal link. But they also say, quote, claims made by people claiming to be psychic or aura readers can be alternatively explained by proven science. And they refer to a paper by Durden from. 2004, which they say, quote, shows how phenomena which arise as a consequence of the normal functioning of the human visual system can explain the purported direct experience of the aura. For instance, the complementary color effect, which results from a temporary exhaustion of the color-sensitive cells in the retina, could account for the presence of auric colors seen by a sensitive viewer when staring at a person. Uh, And they also say, staring at a darker object, a human figure, against a bright background may induce the perception of a bright halo around the object. This is due to a contrast amplification mechanism built into the human visual system, which allows for an efficient detection of edges. Hmm. And so I thought this was interesting that okay uh maybe this would apply even more directly to the halo or the nimbus than uh than than it would to the the aura perception because you, you can imagine a certain number of optical effects, uh, one of which, of course, is, is the after image, you know. So if you do you ever do that thing when you're a kid where like you look at a picture, a certain sort of like negative image of a face on a page and then they say, OK, stare at this for 20 seconds and then close yep. your eyes and turn your head up and you'll like see a face staring at you from behind your eyelids. That's a natural optical effect, the, the afterimage effect that has to do with, uh, with the latent uh, uh, activation of retinal cells when you've been concentrating on an image. I think it's quite easy to see how something like that could create optical effects that seem quite mystical in nature and could allow you to believe you're perceiving either an aura of color in the shape of a person or surrounding a person or imagining that you're seeing light emanating from a person.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are a whole host of uh, of optical um, of effects like that. Uh, oftentimes, you'll see them um, uh, utilized at a, like a hands-on science center where mm-hmm. you'll you'll have a number of them you can do. Where it's like stare at this spinning thing and then look over here, or you know, look at these lines and then look at these lines. And uh, it's it, it's all really quite interesting. I mean, so sometimes it's something you do when you're a kid. Maybe you forget how how interesting it can be. Mm-hmm. But you know, it it goes to show uh, just how how um, how our visual system how it can be tricked into seeing things that are not quite there or enhanced to degrees that uh, that uh, you know don't seem to line up with our normal uh, day-to-day sensory world One of my favorite things actually uh,
0: about our visual systems is that like you can prove to people through direct experience that their visual perception of reality is an illusion. Now, it's not an illusion as in it's like a totally imagined hallucination. It's obviously based on real objects and light coming in around you. But the perception that you see an unbroken visual field of full color all around you, it really feels like you might see that, but you don't. And a mm-hmm. couple of great examples for that that you can show people are if you hold up, like, colored flags at the very periphery of somebody's vision, you can immediately uh, – people immediately realize, like, oh, I think I perceive color in every direction, but I'm colorblind in my peripheral vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That's like uh, – try it sometime if you never have before. Get, like, different colored markers or flags or something. Hold them up at the very edge of where you can see. You can't tell the difference in the colors. Another one is uh, if you ever want to look up uh, how to do this, there's a way where you can find the blind spot caused by your optic nerve as it uh, as it routes uh, information away from the retina in the back of your eye. Uh, There is a blind spot just right in the middle of your vision, wherever you're looking and stuff where you can't see anything. And you can actually do experiments to bring this out, but it's totally invisible to you. You can't see the fact that you can't see this area. I think we uh I think we talked about something like this one time with R. Scott Baker about the fact that he he had like an injury to his eye or something that caused yes, him yes. T- to have an illusion of this kind where in fact he had a large blind spot in the center of his vision, but it didn't register as a blind spot as in what you might imagine like a like a field of black or white or something where there was no vision instead the the brain just tricked him into thinking he had total vision, but there were just places where he actually couldn't see anything.
1: Right, so he would look at his dog, and the dog would just have no face. Right. <laughs> That's our I recall. But still the brain's
0: saying, like, no, you're seeing fine. Yeah, th- yeah this is, a, it's just, this is it's everything. It's just a faceless dog. Yeah. Everything's fine. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride.
2: or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new hyundai santa fe visit hyundaiusa.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details hyundai there's joy in every journey
1: well i i want to go from here to talk uh, to talk about halos um as a, as a purely optical phenomenon so These are examples of halos that cannot not only are are visible to the naked eye, but they can be they can be captured via photography and frequently are, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, as mentioned in the previous episode, there are at least a couple of solar and lunar optical phenomena, you know, broad, broad categories of of them that are worth singling out. And these phenomena have been observed for thousands of years.
0: Yeah, uh, this this is a really good point. We sort of alluded to this in the last episode, but uh, I just want to emphasize again that I wouldn't suggest that a person needed to have a Direct vision of light emanating from another person's body at some point in order to imagine something like a halo or nimbus. It could be, it could be just pure imagination that brings out this imagery, or it could well be basic associative thinking, mapping the properties of celestial objects or interesting optical phenomena in the skies or on the earth, and then associating that with a person, you know, with, with godhood yeah. or tr- transcending power, and then putting that on the body of somebody
1: who is feared or revered. Right. And uh, in the previous episode, we mentioned some Roman and Greek examples of of these being observed and recorded. But I I do want to drive home that, you know, the sun... Is, has always been of importance to uh, to cultures uh, throughout time and around the world. So anyone looking around, looking up at the sun or the moon, we're likely to encounter these things. Uh, we just have you know certain rec- recorded records that are uh, that stand out that are a little older. Um, I was looking around and I found um, a paper titled "The Sun Recorded Throughout History" by M. Vasquez from 2009, and they point to bone inscriptions from the Shang Dynasty in, in ancient China. Uh, where, we, uh, where they recorded solar phenomena during the second millennium BCE. They reported at least four phenomena, including uh, a dark and gloomy sun, solar eclipses, and the solar halo, which I believe was uh, Ri-Yun. Uh, interestingly enough, there's another one uh, that there's no translation of. Uh, so uh, it, it does make me wonder what that particular solar phenomena might have been.
0: Oh, boy, I bet people have a
1: lot of fun with that one. Yeah. <laughs> That's when the sun turns inside out and becomes the black hole sun. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's just an, another, you know, commonly um, uh, mm. seen occurrence so with, the, with, with the sun. But uh, anyway, broadly speaking, a halo can occur anytime the sun or the moon shines through thin clouds composed of ice crystals. And the effect can be caused by one of two or a combination of refraction, and or reflection via these crystals. So the refractions are going to cause color separations, meaning the final results may be colored, while re- reflected light remains uncolored. The 22-degree uh, halo is the most common form of this, consisting of either a series of colored arcs or even complete circles of 22-degree angular radiuses around the sun or the moon. And the coloration, te- if there's coloration, it tends to be red um, on the... Um, uh, on the on the, uh, on the inside, and a blur on the outside. Uh, with the moon, these are sometimes called lunar halos or winter halos. And I was lucky enough to see one of these the last time I was at the beach. I was out walking on a beach at night and, uh, you know, looking up at the moon, and everything was, you know, beautiful but normal. And then all of a sudden, uh, there's this tremendous halo effect, which, if you don't know what you're, you're looking at, it can look like A portal has opened up like a great circular portal has opened up Mm -hmm. around the moon between you and the moon uh like there's some sort of a a connection or a a cylindrical highway between you uh and the lunar surface it's pretty pretty interesting
0: yeah it makes me think about uh images in the paradiso of like rings or wheels of angels running about or in concentric circles around the heavenly bodies
1: yeah and i i you know again people throughout time would have witness these and so you can you can imagine this having an impact on our our perception of you know the worlds beyond and of the higher cosmos now these are just the most common halo effects these 22 degrees uh, but there are many others including the 46 degree halo it's similar but at twice the distance roughly uh, sometimes occurring in conjunction with 22-degree halos and even other optical effects, so you might encounter, say, a sundog with a double halo.
0: Now, uh, what what are sundogs? That's a different optical phenomenon caused by
1: the right. sunlight. Yeah, a sundog, also known as a mock sun, uh, this is caused by refraction of sunlight in atmospheric ice crystals. These are generally colored patches of light to either side of the sun at the same altitude as the sun itself. So to a certain extent, it can look like three suns dawning uh, over the earth, uh, or at least like one major sun and like two sort of weirdly shaped mini suns out on either side. The sun's two suns. Yeah. And, of course, this instantly brings to mind the Chinese myth of the ten surplus suns that uh, Ho Yi had to shoot down out of the sky. And I've not actually seen a connection. I couldn't find a connection drawn between those two, uh, though it wouldn't surprise me if there was. Uh, But there does seem to be a connection in Norse mythology, the two wolves hunting the sun and the moon. So these would be Fenrir's sons, Skoll and Heiti uh, Horvintensen. Um, I'm not sure if I got that second one wolf's (laughs) name right, so... um, Cosmic wolves go easy on me. Uh, But uh, but uh, there there, there's obviously an eclipse connection as well here because these are supposed to be um, like sun and moon consumers. But uh, but I I, I did run across direct connections between the sun dogs uh, that are sometimes seen to either side of the sun and these uh, these supernatural uh, beasts. Well, coming back to the the version of the halo that is either a ring
0: around the head or an emanation of light, as if from behind the head. I mean, obviously, if you uh, have never witnessed a solar eclipse before and seen mm-hmm. the corona of the sun around the moon, I mean that that is a probably the most awe-inspiring physical, real thing I've I've ever witnessed. Like it, yeah. It, well, it, it it is a life-changing thing to see with your eyes and but be very careful of your eyes when uh, when observing one
1: Oh, yeah. And that, that we'll come back to that in a second. Uh, th- so there are a whole host of rare optical effects related to these examples I've shared that produce various halos. And, and these have, again, been observed throughout time and, and depicted in art. Two of the earlier Western examples of their recording are often, cited are often uh, Aristotle's writings on them, as well as the 1535 Sundog painting, uh, often held up as the oldest example of a clear atmospheric halo in art. Um, to, To quote Aristotle, though, in meteorology from 350 BCE, this is the Webster translation, quote, the halo often appears as a complete circle. It is seen round the sun and the moon and bright stars by night as well as by day and at midday or even in the afternoon, more rarely about sunrise or sunset. Now, it's
0: obvious that seeing things like this in the sky can be awe-inspiring, but is there a reason to suspect connections naturally in history between seeing things like this and religious concepts?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It seems to be the case. And I think one of the, the best examples of this is to, to look at the miracle of the sun or the miracle of Fatima uh, on October 13th, 1917 in Fatima, Portugal, Um a number of you've probably run across this before. You've read an article about it. Uh, it, it involved a variety of reports of uh, colored lights in the daytime sky, of a, of a dancing sun that seemed to move around in the sky, and even angelic apparitions. Uh, and, and there are various interpretations of this, uh, none of which are, you know, can be held up as the definitive answer. Some have pointed to the possibility of mass hallucination or mass hysteria. Um, you know, you would have been dealing with a you know a, a pretty religious bunch uh, observing this, uh, and in some cases you're dealing with the observations and um, uh, you know and recollections of children. Uh, but it does sound increasingly likely. That it's more a matter of there having been, first of all, a variety of alleged reports, you know, different Mm. stories, people seeing different things in the sky and some seeing nothing at all out of the ordinary. So it's not like everybody looked up and saw something uh, interesting. Some people looked up and didn't see what anybody was talking about, but it's the most outrageous, the most extreme accounts. They're the ones that survive and then evolve in retellings and in uh, recordings. So again, skeptics have offered a host of possible explanations for this particular incident, uh, uh, but it's, um, it, it has been proposed that the whole thing might have started with some manner of a halo or sundog sighting or some sort of unique combination of these, you know, like the sun dogs with uh, a couple of halos around the sun. Mm-hmm. And then here's the thing. As various folks start staring at the sun in awe of these phenomena or trying to see what the person next to them is is looking at... They end up staring at the sun too long and they experience temporary retinal distortion due to prolonged solar staring. Don't stare at the sun, folks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, remember when we had that solar eclipse uh, in the last few years, you know, that was we, everybody had to drive that home. Like, even though the sun is doing something really interesting or and is even being, uh, you know, is even darkening, do not stare at it uh, because you can you can seriously damage your eyes. And in the short term, yeah, you could experience temporary retinal distortion, which could have just just add to these interpretations of like crazy things going on in the sky.
0: Well, if you pair this with what I was saying earlier about the possible, like, the known effects of vision and optical effects within the eye and within the brain – that are caused by, say, staring for a long time at a bright light source, like you could get effects that wouldn't even necessarily have to be something in the sky, but would also not just be people using their imaginations. They'd be real perceptions for the people, but they could be based on things like retinal effects, after image things, or, uh, right. or over perceiving the edges of, of outlines due to intense strain on the eyes.
1: Yeah. And then once something like this is observed and thought about, and then once you've had a chance to ask other people about it, then you can often turn to pre existing scripts to explain what that might have been, mm-hmm. such as, uh, you know, angelic beings, such as uh, aliens and uh, unidentified flying objects, that sort of thing. I just thought of a really
0: great opening for a movie. Okay. So okay. it's, it's Fatima Portugal. Everybody's staring at the sun. They, they think they see angelic beings or, or a vision of the Virgin Mary or something like that it apparitions in the sky. And, uh, and then it slowly resolves and it's coming in and it's coming in and what is it? And it's the predators dropship, ship. And, the, <laughs> and this is predator Portugal. And so all of the, the, the Yautja hop out and they begin, they begin their hunt <laughs> Is uh, that in bad taste enough to be a predator movie?
1: Uh, maybe I just don't know that they'd get a lot of good sport. Like you know, they're 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 drawn to the, the the really rough parts of the world, right?
0: Oh, I guess I, there's not enough conflict here. There's got to be like a war going on or something.
1: Yeah, like futuristic LA and what 97 was that when it was supposed to take place? Oh yeah, predator the Danny tube? Glover
0: one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: What if they arrived, uh, the the predators were to arrive, and they're like, okay, we have detected there's a lot of conflict right now. And then they get to their location, and then they find out all the conflict is online online like in uh, social media streams and they're like, ah, <laughs> we brought all these weapons and now we just have to get, uh, we have to get Twitter accounts instead and learn English. Oh, no, 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 no. So they show up because they're like, okay, the heat signatures we've detected on
0: this place on the surface of the earth indicate ongoing thermonuclear warfare. But then when they arrive, it's just a Bitcoin mining facility.
1: Ah, uh, they're like, well, we got to go all in on Bitcoin now, I guess we right. traveled all the way here. But then they get to launch the new Predator uh, cryptocurrency, right? Assuming there's not already one. I'm sure there's already one. <laughs> isn't there? There's probably there's already like a Garfield
0: cryptocurrency,
1: isn't there? And um, I don't know, I but be, I would mis- not be surprised that <laughs> no, there could be. I, I would I wouldn't put money against you. Odie Coin. Well, I guess we'll we'll uh, close this one out right here. But uh, you know we're gonna keep going with this uh, this line of thinking though. This idea of um, optical effects that then get interpreted in various ways. Uh, Mm. uh, Unless plans change, I think uh, the next episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind will uh, continue on a similar topic.
0: Yeah, I'm very excited about that. We're going to be sort of moving on from Halos mostly. I don't know. It might come back up. But, uh, but, but yeah, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, in the meantime, if you want to catch up on episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find them. They're in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind feed. These are our core episodes, you know, mostly science and culture and so forth. They publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Wednesdays, we throw out our short-form artifact episodes. On Mondays, you got your listener mail. And on Friday, uh, you know, we, we leave the most of the science up on the shelf and we take a little time to discuss a weird movie with our Weird House Cinema episodes. So, uh, uh, yeah. Again, wherever you get your podcast, wherever you find that podcast stream, just rate, review, and subscribe. You know, if you have the ability to do those things, uh, that helps us out.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow
2: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible.